All right, we're here in Joshua chapter 22. Uh, We left off, I was out of town last week, so two weeks ago, we left off right around verse 10. And so I'm going to start reading there. But let's first have a word of prayer. Lord, it's good to be in your house tonight. We're grateful for the opportunity now to open up our Bibles and to study your word. And I thank you for all those who are here tonight and those who are watching online. And we thank you for all those who are going to be baptized tonight. And we just rejoice at what you're doing in our midst. And we give you all the glory for it, Lord. We know that you are the one who saves souls and you heal bodies and you restore marriages and you bind up the brokenhearted and you return the prodigals home and you do so many wonderful healing, restoring, saving things that we stand in awe of your goodness and of your grace. We ask you now to bless this time in your word. It's your word, Lord. We pray you would use it to speak to us tonight as we just humble ourselves before you. And as we seek your face, we love you and we praise you together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Now, before I begin reading here, Joshua 22 is where we are, right around verse 10. Uh, Let me remind you what has happened. The land of Israel has been uh, divided by lot to the various 12 tribes of Israel. The only exception to the division is that one of the tribes, Manasseh, Half of them wanted to live on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and the other half of the tribe wanted to live on the western side. So you have a split with the tribe of Manasseh. You have half on the eastern side and half on the western side. Uh, But otherwise, the land allotment on the map behind me is the basic boundaries for the 12 tribes of Israel. And you'll notice that two and a half tribes, as I alluded to, are on the eastern side uh, of the Jordan River. You have the tribe of Reuben the tribe of Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. And so when you get here to chapter 22, the fighting in the land of Canaan uh, is over. The Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, they've, they've all been subdued. Now, unfortunately, the Israelites were not completely obedient. They didn't drive them out completely. There are some pockets of these various tribal groups within the land of Israel. It will come back to haunt the Israelites, but for the time being, the Israelites have subdued the land, they've taken over the land, they have laid claim to their right to be in the land because God gave this land on oath to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so after dividing the land, two and a half tribes are on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Well, in chapter 22, because the fighting is over, when Joshua then basically Uh, discharges the army and he allows the Israelites now the war is over the fighting is done and uh, he allows them to go back to their respective homes and to live in their respective territories well two and a half tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan River as they go back they decide we're going to build a big altar to God uh, right here by the Jordan River And it will be a lasting memorial and a testimony that even though we're on the eastern side and the rest of our brothers, the majority are on the western side of the Jordan River, we still belong to them and we still serve the same God. Now, they didn't build this altar as an altar of sacrifice. They built this altar as an altar of memorial to remember, to honor God, 
as a visible, tangible reminder to both sides on the Jordan River, hey, we're in the same family, we worship the same God, just because we live on the eastern side of the Jordan River doesn't mean that we don't belong to you and vice versa. So that was their intent. But if you remember from two weeks ago when we were reading through this, some people see the altar and they don't know all the facts and they jump to conclusions. Now, I know when we read this, some of you are going to think, well, this doesn't apply to me because you've never jumped to a conclusion in your life. Well, I don't know what else you're lying about, but, but we've all at different times jumped to conclusions before we had all the facts. And so here we go here in chapter 22, verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, here's these two and a half tribes, they built an altar there by the Jordan, a great, impressive altar. Now the children of Israel heard someone say, and as we mentioned, write down in your Bibles the word hearsay. That's what it is. I heard someone say, you know, this is going to unravel right from the beginning here. The children of Israel, the the other tribes on the western side, heard someone say, Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the children of Israel's side. And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. Isn't this amazing? These are their brothers. They are ready to engage them in war over something that they heard before they even get clarification on the matter. Now, there's a reason why this is called hearsay, and there's a reason why hearsay, for those of you who are attorneys, you understand, or those of you who are not attorneys, because we're Christians, understand that's a joke. That's a joke. You can be a Christian attorney. We have wonderful Christian attorneys here. They're going to sue me for that, but... but But those of us who are lay people and those who are educated in the law know that hearsay, for the most part, is not admissible in a court of law. Why? Because you you can't give testimony about something that you heard, but if you didn't hear it yourself, that's hearsay. So you can't say, well, for example, in a court of law, you can't say, well, Mary told me that Tom went out of town. Well, do you know for a fact that Tom went out of town, or are you only telling me what you heard Mary say? Because that's hearsay. You don't know that from first-hand information. That's second-hand or sometimes third-hand information. That's why it's not admissible in a court of law. That's hearsay. It's a dangerous thing when we jump to conclusions because of things that we hear, and they've jumped to such a conclusion, they want to kill their fellow Israelites because they think that their fellow Israelites have abandoned the worship of God at the tabernacle, which at this time was located in Shiloh, And that they've set up their own altar to worship God their own way, or perhaps they're not even worshiping the true God. They've just built this altar to worship other gods. So they come unraveled. They come unglued here. And they're ready to go to war. They're sharpening their swords over something that they've heard. Please make note, we mentioned these two points last time. But assumption leads to accusation. Communication leads to clarification. What they needed was to communicate. They needed to ask, hey, what's the deal here? What's going on? Help me to understand. This is good advice for anybody who's married. (laughs) If there's some misunderstanding, don't jump to a conclusion. Just say gently, okay? Because we all know as men, it's not what you say, it's how you say it, right? Okay? Very quietly, gently. Use your indoor voice. Hi. 
hey, can you help me understand? And then it gives the opportunity for somebody to say, oh, that's not what I meant. This is what happened, or this is what I meant, or whatever the deal is. And then there's clarification when there's communication. But if you just jump to conclusions, then you're going to make these accusations based on assumptions. So here we go. So here's what they do. Verse 13. Then the children of Israel sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Okay, so they send the, the priest's son. Uh, you, you're, you're going to go on the special envoy. You're going to find out what the deal is here. And along with him, verse 14, ten rulers, one ruler, each from the chief house of every tribe of Israel, and each one was the head of the house of his father among the divisions of Israel. And then they came to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead, and they spoke with them, saying... Now notice, they're going to jump right into commentary, not questions for clarification. They just jump right in. Look at what they say. Verse 16. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. What treachery is this that you have committed against the Lord of Israel to turn away this day from following the... Look at these assumptions. You're turning away from the Lord in that you have built for yourselves an altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord. Is the iniquity of Peor... So they start to revisit their own history. Is the iniquity of Peor not enough for us from which we are not cleansed till this day? Although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, but that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? And it shall be, if you rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take possession among us. But do not rebel against the Lord, nor rebel against us by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing, and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel, and that man did not perish alone in his iniquity? Okay, that's, that's their speech. Now, notice, you know, the people on the eastern side of the Jordan River are getting confronted this way, and they're having to stand there just listening to all this. You know, what, you want to go back and visit the days of Peor? Remember Achan, what happened to him? And you've abandoned the Lord your God. What are you doing? And if you don't like living on that side, you could have come over and our side before building this fake altar unto God, because that's not the real altar. The real altar is in Shiloh. They're going off like this. Okay. Now, when they get the answer, I picture it like in a movie, like you just went off like, and then you get clarification. And then the one who's like, goes, oh, never mind. You know, this is what's going to happen. They're going to be like, oh, never mind. So look at, listen to what happens. Verse, verse 21. And then the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said to the heads of the divisions of Israel, the Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods. Okay, in the name of God, they're, they're like, he knows. And let Israel itself know. If it is in rebellion or if in treachery against the Lord, do not save us this day. Like, Go, go ahead and kill us. If we've, if we've done something wrong, kill us. If we have built ourselves an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings, or if to offer peace offerings on it, let the Lord himself require an account. So they're saying, if we built this as an altar of sacrifice, we're doomed. But, verse 24, but in fact, we have done it for fear, for a reason saying, in time to come, your descendants may speak to our descendants, saying, 
What have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between you and us, you children of Reuben and children of Gad. You have no part in the Lord. And so your descendants would make our descendants cease fearing the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now prepare to build ourselves an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a witness. The Hebrew word there is aid, A-Y-D. That it might be a witness between you and us and our generations after us that we may perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings, with our sacrifices, and with our peace offerings, that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. Therefore, we said that it will be when they say this to us or to our generations in time to come, that we may say, here, here's the replica of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, though not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices, but it is a witness between you and us. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn from following the Lord this day to build an altar for burnt offerings, for grain offerings, or for sacrifices, Besides the altar of the Lord, our God, which is before his tabernacle. Okay, so here's, here's their reply. They're just like, you guys have jumped to conclusions. We didn't build this altar to sacrifice anything on. We built this altar as a witness, aid, as a witness between us and you. Because here's what's likely to happen. And they anticipated this. Your descendants are going to accuse our descendants that because we're living on the eastern side of the Jordan River, we have forsaken the Lord and you're not really part of us. And we want this altar here to serve as a lasting witness, as a memorial, as a statement that we belong to you as much as you belong to us. And we, we all serve and worship the same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We built this altar strictly as a witness between us and you. Not, not for any wrong reasons. And so they declare all this. They say all this. And it says in verse 30, now when Phineas, the priest and the rulers of the congregation, the heads of the divisions of Israel who were with him heard the words that the children of Reuben, the children of Gad and the children of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. So this is where they're like, oh, okay, never mind. You know, we came with swords drawn, but all right, uh, we, we won't kill you. Okay. Verse 31, and then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh, this day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord, and now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, Eleazar the priest, and the rulers returned to the children of Reuben and the children of Gad from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the children of Israel, and brought back word to them. So the thing pleased the children of Israel, and the children of Israel blessed God. They spoke no more of going against them in battle to destroy the land where the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar witness aid, for it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Okay, so... Uh, they averted a disaster there of civil war over what? Hearsay. If there's any inclination uh, in our lives to jump to conclusions, to make assumptions, which often lead to accusations, stop it. Ask questions. 
communicate, find out more information. You know, there have been many times uh, I, I can attest over the years where somebody has told me something and you just kind of get riled up inside. Like, well, I can't believe it. And then you hear the rest of the story and then you realize, wow, I, I'm, I'm glad I didn't resort to violence there because I, I would have been completely in the wrong. And it's a terrible thing to even draw conclusions in our heads about stuff solely based on what we hear that someone said. It's a very dangerous thing. You know, in Proverbs eighteen seventeen, it says, The first to state his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Another way of saying that is, um, you know, when someone says something to you first, there's always another side to the story. And you must always give the benefit of the doubt first. Well, you know, and then investigate. But give the benefit of the doubt. Can I just say to you sincerely over my years of pastoral ministry, there have been a number of people who have confided in me how their lives have been ruined because people jumped to conclusions and made assumptions and accusations that were not true. It's a terrible thing to ruin someone's character reputation based on lies and hearsay. We must be truth seekers and truth tellers. Don't jump to conclusions. Hold your tongue. Ask questions. Investigate if necessary. But get the other side of the story. Give someone that benefit of the doubt. If you love them enough as a brother or sister, get the other side of the story. I can't emphasize this enough. How many people have been destroyed by someone's gossip or someone's just repeating of a hearsay and has no basis, no truth, but now because enough people have said it or heard it said, it sticks and it's destructive. And we as Christians particularly need to be above this kind of thing. Hearsay has no place, and especially acting on hearsay has no place in the life of a believer as a Christ follower. All right, we get here to these last two chapters, and these are actually going to be kind of quick reads. I know that they're long, but these are, these are dialogues. And I'm just going to um, share with you right up front, here's what they are. These are Joshua's final exhortations. Uh, he's, he's about to die. We find out at the end of the book that he dies at the age of 110. And uh, it tells us here in the first few verses of chapter 23, it says, Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies around about that Joshua was old, advanced in years. Now, some Bible scholars believe there's about 15 to 17 year gap between chapter 22 and chapter 23. And so Joshua's now old and advanced in age. It says in verse 2, And Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and said to them. Okay, so there's no real way to gather the entire nation. So he calls for the leaders. He calls for the elders. He calls for the heads, the judges, and the officers, and the army. And he basically is going to speak to them, and then they're going to disseminate the information. And he starts out there by saying, I am old, advanced in age. 
I am old, advanced in age. The Hebrew here is very beautiful in the language. The Hebrew is zakin ba'abayamim. Zakin ba'abayamim. And it literally means, I am old and in the twilight of my years, the setting of the sun. It's very poetic language here. The, the word zakin means old, ba'ab means the setting of the sun, and bayamim means the days of. So he, he says, I'm living in the days of the setting of the sun in my life. My life is coming to a close. I know I'm soon going home. And so these are the final words of a man in the last season of his life. And this is what he says to them in verse 3. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that I have, cu- that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward, the Mediterranean. And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. So you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Now, this is very critical to to this speech in chapter 23. So I'm going to repeat that. Be very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. So if you want to summarize chapter 23 in a phrase, he's going to tell them, obey God completely. Obey God completely. Completely, Because if you don't, he says in the rest of verse 6, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, and lest you go among these nations, the, these who remain among you, see that's a problem, you shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them nor bow down to them, but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God, as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations. But as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you, as he promised you. Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Or else, if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you, and make marriages with them, and go into them, and they to you, know for certain... That the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you, and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. I'm going to return to dust. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that no no one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. Therefore, it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land, which the Lord your God has given you. And when you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. Let me just tell you what his warning is here. He's saying to them, you need to obey God completely. You need to obey the word of God. Because he said the the greatest disaster, and this is so applicable for our own nation, 
The greatest disaster to befall a nation is not militarily, but morally. He never says, other nations are going to come. They're going to attack you. I mean, there's a place where God will use the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians in their future to be the rod of his discipline. But the exhortation here that Joshua leaves with these leaders is not that there's a a threat from another foreign military. He says the greatest threat is from within. Because when you start denying the law of the Lord and you start living with yourself as your own moral standard, it'll be the demise of this nation. And we're seeing this happening in our own nation. Slowly the erosion of God's moral standard in our nation is leading, unfortunately, to the ultimate collapse. I hope I'm not here for that day. But I'm telling you, when you thumb a nose at God, that nation is on borrowed time. And when our Supreme Court of our land starts to codify certain things, like in 1973, the codification of the, of the killing of unborn babies, and now we've had over 60 million babies in the United States murdered, okay? You start not holding life as precious. Then in 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, that defines marriage as between a man and a woman. In 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court then said that all 50 states must recognize same-sex marriage. When you start down that path of denying the standard of God, it is the ultimate demise of a nation. And we have come so far from what we used to hold as the standard of moral truth. Listen to some of these quotes from some of our American leaders of of the past regarding the Bible and the standard of God's word. Listen, George Washington, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Andrew Jackson, that book, the Bible, is the rock on which our republic rests. Abraham Lincoln, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Ulysses S. Grant, hold fast to the Bible as the sheet anchor of your liberties. Woodrow Wilson, a man had deprived himself of the best there is in the world who has deprived himself of the Bible. And yet, just this May... Biden did not even mention God in the National Day of Prayer declaration in May. He wrote a declaration on the National Day of Prayer, but didn't mention God once. The first president since the declaration, since the uh, National Day of Prayer uh, presidential proclamations have been issued since Harry S. Truman. The first time a president has not mentioned God in the executive proclamation of the National Day of Prayer. What is happening? We're slowly removing the Bible and we're slowly removing God as the standard for what is right and what is wrong in our land. Joshua says, if you do that, it'll be the ultimate destruction of a nation. Let's read what he says in chapter 24. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges and for their officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, 
This is his second exhortation here, and his last one. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, until the father of Nah and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river, meaning the Euphrates. He's talking about the history of the Jewish people, which began with Abraham, who was not a Jew. Abraham's seed gave birth to the Jewish race. But God is going to call Abraham, the son of Terah, to come to this promised land, and through his seed would emerge the Jewish people. And so he's, he's recalling their own history. So he says, you know, Abraham dwelt on the other side of the river, in the Euphrates, what today would be Iraq. That's where God called Abraham from, Iraq. In old times, and they served other gods. Verse 3, then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. And afterward I brought you out. So he, this is in the first person. This is God recalling history through Joshua. And he just covered there about 450 years. From Abraham to Moses is about 450 years. And he says in verse 6, Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers in chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And so they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and brought the sea upon them and covered them, and your eyes saw what I, what I did in Egypt. And then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time, yeah, 40 years. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you. But I gave them into your land, that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. And then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam, and therefore he continued to bless you. And so I delivered you out of his hand. And then you went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, but I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I gave you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant. Now therefore fear the Lord. Now notice, there's going to be three directives here. Number one, fear the Lord. Number two, serve Him in sincerity and in truth. And number three, put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Now circle the word serve because the word serve or some form of it, served, serves, served, appears 16 times in this chapter alone. It is the most than any other single chapter in all of the Bible. Serve is the emphasis here. And serve whom? Serve the Lord. So this is going to be the theme of chapter 24. Chapter 23 was obey God completely. Chapter 24 is serve God exclusively. Don't serve any other gods. Serve only the Lord. Verse 15. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day. And this is probably the most famous part of the book of Joshua. Many people have what I'm about to read on, you know, placards and stuff. And, and here's, here's what Joshua says. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served 
that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. And Joshua says, look, you know, you're going to, everybody's going to serve somebody or something. And you're going to have to make a decision. You're going to serve this world. You're going to serve your own desires, your own flesh. You're going to serve God. And Joshua says, I don't care what anybody else decides. This is not a decision based on the majority. This is a decision based on your life before God. That's why Joshua says, I don't care what anybody else is going to do. Because I can't force you. One thing I know, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And that's where it begins. You can serve the Lord and it's irrespective of what other people decide. You can have a standard and you can live for the Lord, even if your neighbors don't, your coworkers don't, and other family members don't. You can make that decision yourself. Because at the end of the day, when you stand before Jesus, it's not going to be, well, my neighbor didn't serve you, so that's the reason I didn't. It's going to be, why didn't you? Or why did you? You have to have personal accountability here. This is what he's calling the people to. And so, verse 16, so the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us up and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we, would, that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwell in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And they're like, rah, 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 right? Well, look, verse 19, but Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. Aren't you glad you live in the day of grace? Amen? Because this is harsh stuff. Now listen, he's not discouraging them to not exercise faith. What he's saying to them basically is there's no time for light commitment. So when they go, yeah, 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 we're going to serve him. He comes back and he basically says, really? You're going to do that? You think so? He's challenging them. That's what he's doing. He's, he, you know, he's not coming against them. He's just challenging them. He's like, really? You sure about this? You sure about this? No room for light commitment. By the way, this is nothing dissimilar to what Jesus said. In Luke's gospel, chapter 14, verse 27, he says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In other words, he's saying the same thing. There's no, there's no time for light commitments. And so, verse 21, the people said to Joshua, no, 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 but we will serve the Lord. And verse 22, so Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. And so Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone, notice this, he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. 
And so Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. Can you picture this? The guy we're about to read here is 110. He's like rolling this big rock. All right, uh, this rock's going to be a testimony of what you guys just said. You see this here? That's what he does. I'm just giving you a preview of what I'm going to be like in a few more years. Verse, uh, verse 29. And now it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath Serah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. And Eleazar... And this is the high priest, Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas' son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. So you have the national leader, Joshua, and you have the spiritual leader, Eleazar. They both died. It's the end of a generation here. And the people of Israel are good for a time. But you know, as time goes on, you know what happens. They tend to forget, and thus the book of Judges. So we'll get to that, Lord willing, in two weeks from tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful example that Joshua leaves for us, of a man who was so faithful to serve you, Lord. And that's the epitaph on his tombstone that we just read here. Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. It doesn't say the leader of God's people. It doesn't say anything In terms of a title, it just calls him a servant of the Lord. May that be written on our tombstones, Lord. Nothing fancy. We don't want all the attention, Lord. We just want to be known as servants of the Lord. Thank you for his example. Thank you for his faithfulness. Thank you for these parting words, these exhortations. It applies to us, too. May we obey you completely. May we serve you exclusively. May you be glorified in our lives. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and amen.